This week, all over the country, there has been the sound of cheering. It's the end of term. I spoke to a couple of teachers at the last service and they were delighted to get to this point. Uh, maybe others are slightly less than delighted because this week, coming all over the country, we will hear another sound. The sound of... Are we nearly there yet? <laughs> Our daughter once said as we came through a railway tunnel down south, as she woke up on a long journey, Oh, she said, what's happening? Why are we here? <laughs> Not knowing at all where we were or what for. Are we nearly there yet? Well, we are nearly there in this long journey that has been this series that has been running for the thick end of three months as we have explored what it is Christians believe, the faith that we declare together week by week as we meet together, the faith that, as Chris has shown us so powerfully, we take with us from here as we move from this time today to this time tomorrow. It's been a long journey exploring the different dimensions of our faith, the nature and the character of God, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit along the way. And I trust you've been hugely encouraged in your faith and in your witness as we've made this journey together. Ultimately, of course, the purpose of the church. Why has God created a new society of people all the way through history, all over the world now, to worship him, to do that when they meet, but to do that as they live, and to witness to his view of the world, his view of the situation, his plan to rescue us. And this week, actually, never mind the sound of cheering from the children, there is, again, the sound of weeping and sadness and anger and frustration in Kuwait, in Tunisia, in France, these things are coming closer and they are incomprehensible to some of us. But this is the reality of our world in which we are called to witness and to live. And here we come to the last thing, raised. Are we nearly there? I don't know the timing. But the point is here. Here we see where we're going and we're helped as we make that journey. Now, the Corinthian church, as you all have gathered, is pretty confused. Here is a church where it seems that some, at least, do not believe in the resurrection. And you're already thinking, that is really weird. How does that work? What kind of church is it that believes in Jesus but doesn't believe in the resurrection? And the Corinthian church is about as confusing and as confused as any church gets. We're all a mixed up bunch of people, the wrong side of heaven. So you need a strong notion of the mixed up church. Well, that's us. 
and that's them too. How confused were they? So I guess the first question is, how come some of these Corinthian Christians didn't believe in the resurrection? What did they believe in? I think the reason they got confused here was that they were too close to the culture in which they were living. So some of them thought that the resurrection was already past. So when you become a Christian, because Christ died and was raised, and because we are incorporated with him, we become part of him and his body, therefore we're already raised with him. Yes? Well, half yes. But that's what they thought. And it followed from that that life got quite interesting and quite complicated. So we have everything in Christ, don't we? And therefore there's nothing to wait for. Actually, this is the root of a lot of the troubles in the Corinthian church. It's the root of a lot of trouble in contemporary churches in Africa and South America and sometimes not so far from us as well. Believing that everything is available in Christ and you only have to name it and claim it and it's yours. And by the way, if you don't and you struggle, then there's something wrong with you. It's actually a very pernicious notion and actually devastating, uh, undermining of Christian confidence. And it was here in Corinth. So Paul had to send his good friend Timothy, don't let anybody ever tell you that Timothy is timid, they had to send his good friend Timothy to sort them out. And that's why we have this letter. So in one sense, I'm, I'm not sorry that they were confused, because it gives us the opportunity not to be so confused. So some thought the resurrection was already done. And when you become a Christian, you, you get raised. So what's this talk about resurrection in the future? Others were affected by people around them who then, as now, just don't believe in life after death. In any kind of resurrection, dead people are just dead. You live, you die, and that's it. So many around us believe that. I was uh, enjoying listening to Stephen Fry on Desert Island Discs, but that's clearly his worldview. This life is all there is. You have to make the best of it, because there's nothing to come. Don't believe them when they tell you. Some others believed that uh, though they had become Christians, they hadn't really examined what they brought with them. They hadn't, we could say, changed their default settings. One of my relatives died the other day, somehow wistfully believing. The Lord knows what that means. Another relative said to me, ah, at least now she'll be sure to meet her husband who died four or five years ago as an unbeliever, very determined unbeliever. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder where that's come from. It's come from this old Greek idea that we are body and soul and the soul lives forever 
in some kind of floaty universe where the body departs. And the Corinthians had become believers in Christ, but they had not stopped to examine their assumptions. So somehow, they believed in the idea of an immortal soul that goes on forever. And there are many different versions of that belief. But it means there's no need for a resurrection. You can see, if you come at it from any of those three angles, the question's a good one. How come you don't believe in the resurrection, says Paul? He has now to take them right back to the beginning. He started this enormous letter with a song about the cross. We've sung beautifully this morning, powerful, uh, appropriate words to this theme of being raised. And Paul starts his letter with a song to the cross, a hymn to the cross. And by the end he comes back and he finishes with a hymn to the resurrection. This is his theme in these last chapters. So let us go with him back to the beginning, looking at verses 12 to 20, if you'd like to follow with me. You see what Paul is doing here, especially in this first section. He's saying, look, I see that you believe some things and actually effectively you don't believe others. Can I push you? Can I push you back? Can I explore what that means? How did you get to that? And what does it mean for you? Let me tell you what it means for you. I'm telling you, verse 12, that Christ has been raised from the dead. I'm telling you, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. By the way, those of you in television or radio advertising, did you see that? That's called the envelope that goes either side of the advert break in the program that you're watching. It's the same advert at the beginning and the end. It's clever. Make sure that the lasting memory, and people pay lots of money for this, the lasting memory is whatever was advertised in the envelope. Whatever else goes on in the middle, you might forget. But the last word, the first word, sorry, and the last word, well, here we are, uh, way back in the first century, and Paul knows exactly that technique. And that's how he sets this up. He says, look, Christ is raised. He really is raised. Can I show you what you're doing in the middle? Because it's not good. He pushes them back to see the consequences. Is there no resurrection? Verse 13 and 14. If Christ is not raised, then I'm wasting my time speaking to you. My preaching is empty, vacuous. I have nothing of substance to say. Worse, your faith is useless. Some of our critics say that to us, don't they? Why do you waste your time on a Sunday morning? I was going to say a lovely Sunday morning. Well, it was a lovely Saturday morning. And uh, one day, maybe next week, it's going to be lovely too. But what, why do you do this? Your faith is useless. Worse, he says in verse 15, together we are found to be misrepresenting God, telling lies about God. That's a very striking phrase. That's a very difficult thing. Christ has been raised and if not, our preaching is empty, our faith is useless and together we're found lying about God. 
giving a totally false impression, telling untruths. That's a striking thing to say, isn't it? Your faith is futile if you believe this, he says in verse 16 and 17. You are stuck in sin. Nothing can change you. There's no solution for you. There's no salvation. There's no rescue possible now. And the result is very striking. That those of our friends who've already died, verse 18 and 19, uh, literally fallen asleep. It's a rather lovely phrase, isn't it? Those who have fallen asleep are lost. By the way, this uh, idea of falling asleep is the parallel line in the New Testament to being raised like the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? Uh, the one who didn't criticize Jesus but said, oh, Jesus, you're innocent, but I'm guilty. I'm getting what I deserve. Please remember me when you come into paradise. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So how often when we go and remember someone who's died, when we go to a funeral, that's the message we hear. It's only half the story. Here's the other half. Our brother, our sister, uh, our relative has fallen asleep. We don't know how long it is from falling asleep to waking up most of the time. So there's a horizon in there somewhere. And when you wake up and are raised, you will be with the Lord. That's how to fit the two things together. But they look like, uh, like a railway line turning two different things, don't they? But here, those who have fallen asleep, if what you say is true, then there's no hope for them. You see how he forces them to face the consequences of what they're saying. And ultimately, he says right at the end, we end up believing just for here and just for now. And we are most to be pitied of everybody. We believed what we were told. It's turned out to be rubbish. We gambled on eternal life and we lost. If you say there's no resurrection, that's where it takes you. But remember the envelope. Remember the beginning of the break and the end of the break. Remember verse 12 and verse 20. It's not true. He was raised, Christ. And we will join him when we fall asleep and are raised. Last week we were thinking how powerful it is to say that God is the judge. And in a world that we've been watching this week where so many things uh, are damaged and difficult and lead people to despair. What a powerful gospel word that is. There is a God who knows the whole story. There is a God who knows the real reason. There is a God who can dig underneath the deepest motives. And there is a God whom you may trust will judge and will judge justly. What good news that is especially if you're struggling, especially for those who are really up against it. Resurrection, someone said, affirms that sin and death do not have the last word. Here we are in the Roman world, and we've got a combination of the finest religion in the ancient world, Judaism, and the finest legal system, the Roman system. 
And they have combined together to put Jesus on the cross. How sick is that? How painful is that? But that was not the end. He was raised. The ultimate realities are, yes, the cross, but also the empty tomb and the body that was not there. The person who appears to groups of people, and by the way, it's a group thing, the resurrection. It's something to be experienced together. By the end, over 500 people saw him because he is raised. Therefore, we say, when we go back to the beginning, when we tease these things out, that new life has really begun. And that's the second thing to reflect on this morning. Let us go on in confidence because we know where we're going. You see that in the next section, verse 21 to 28. And actually, if you take a bit of time and you read it through carefully, you see it's a bit like the runner coming up to a high jump. There's a rhythm in it before you bend back on that pole and go over the bar and you find a safe landing, we trust, at the other side. So the running is kind of running in the realities here. Verse 21 and 22, death came. In Christ, we're made alive. Death is here. Resurrection is here. Adam ruined us. Christ rescued us. You see the rhythm that goes on in these words. All die. And all will be made alive. Up we go. Over the bar. Each in our turn, we're told. Christ first, and then us in that lovely, lovely phrase, those who belong to him will also be raised with him. I wonder today, if that is true for you, you can say, I belong to him. Yes, he is mine, but I am his. Because of what he has done for us, we were asked to reflect as we sang. Back over this year, back over a few years. All that God has done for us supremely on the cross, he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And his resurrection proves it. And we are part of it with him. Then in the end, in a beautiful image, uh, it's like he, he does up a parcel, tidies it all up, uh, builds the kingdom and hands it over to Father God. He's done. On the cross he said, my work is finished. I have dealt with everything that's wrong. I have opened the way to God that no one else could open. And now he completes what he finished, if you see what I mean. Now the resurrection is here. Are we nearly there yet? I don't know. I don't know how long this journey will take until we experience these things. But we definitely know where we are going. Yesterday we were enjoying the sunshine. And I was reminded of that lovely Arabic word for an umbrella, shamsea. It means sun shield. <laughs> so in Egypt and Lebanon and wherever else you have your umbrella to keep the sun off you. Not today, I fear. 
Maybe next week, we're going to be sitting in a caravan next week down in the southwest corner. And Helen spotted that on Thursday it's going to be 27 degrees in Dumfrieshire and pouring with rain all day. So I don't quite know how that works. <laughs> Either way, we'll need chamsea, huh? We'll need this umbrella. And this is what we have here within the envelope, under the umbrella. Christ has died. Christ is raised. We were with him and we will be resurrected with him. Now within that, you are free to live your life. You see, the kingdom takes the place of every rule, of every authority, of every power. These are the standard words for governments and rulers and regimes and systems. The things that uh, control our lives. Regimes that uh, so frighten so many people in so many parts of the world. Eras that seem to go on forever. They'll all come to an end. No superpowers survive this. For us, the change seems so slow. The situation often seems so hopeless. Especially when these systems set themselves against Christ. But the promise is that Christ is raised. Christ is supreme. And Christ will declare his victory over all these things. And there'll be no comebacks neither possible nor allowed when he is declared to be Lord. This is revolutionary stuff. In uh, 44 BC, Corinth was rebuilt. And each retired soldier, I couldn't find a mock-up of their houses, but each retired soldier who had fought for the regime received a home and a piece of land on which to make a living from the state, from the Roman Empire, from Caesar the Emperor, the Lord. And you can see, can't you, why uh, they were pretty committed to the system, huh? If the system does that for you, then you're going to defend the system for a long time to come, aren't you? And then some people come along and say, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. He may not give you a house. You may not get a piece of land out of him. But he's the real Lord. You see how seditious this is. You see how undermining of the system this is. Subversive stuff. Extremely risky to say. But comforting again. When we see so much that's bad in regimes and governments. And motivating too. Christians have not just sat back when they've heard this. They've not just said, oh, phew, that's good. It's all going to work out in the end. We can just throttle back and rest. No, this has been the main motivator for Christians. Down the centuries, to be engaged and to be involved and to be transforming their situations in healthcare, in education, through the legal system, through social services, through looking after people who are in particular kind of need, through going beyond ourselves and relating to what's going on in the wider world, not turning our back and shutting our doors on what is happening. These are powerful things, and they are motivated by this picture of Christ raised and the assurance of resurrection. We don't just say, well, we don't need to do anything. God will fix it in the end. This vision drives us to live and to work for the kingdom 
that Christ is producing. You see what Paul is saying, don't you? And this for the beginning of our summer break, perhaps, for many of us. Something to meditate on throughout the summer. The reign of Christ that began at the resurrection will eventually put all his enemies under his feet. That's the perspective. It, it comes from Psalm 8, comes from Psalm 110, and it comes way back in history. Next time you go to Cairo, and I hope you will not be afraid to do that, you will see that they are nearly finished a new museum. It's uh, out of town, it's going to be out by the pyramids, and it'll give them a lot more space than the old, rather crowded, dusty museum had to display the glories of the, the center, the heart of civilization, if you like. And if you go there, you will go into that glorious display, Tutankhamun's relics. And there is somewhere in the mix, I couldn't find the exact one, but something like it here, a life-sized statue, a wooden one, of Tutankhamun, seated on his throne with his feet on a stool. And you think, okay, yeah, he's putting his feet up, he's having a rest. It's kind of a lazy boy version of the Pharaoh, right? Well, not right, actually, because what's on the footstool? <laughs> the footstool has the figures of the characters who he beat. So every time he sits down to watch the box, catch up TV or something, have a wee blether with his wife, he puts his feet on the stool with the carvings of the people that he beat. <laughs> they are under his feet, actually on the stool. They have their hands tied behind their back. That's the kind of image uh, that was around a long time before the New Testament, which this picks up on. Or uh, in Eritrea, here's another example. The Emperor Haile Selassie was overthrown by a socialist regime of Mengistu Haile Miriam. Haile Selassie on the left there, distinctive figure, Miriam on the right. And eventually, as all regimes do, Miriam's regime fell. And the new rulers wanted to kind of put the clock back and find out what had really happened. And they wanted to discover where did they put Haile Selassie's body? They, they took him out of the picture, they killed him, but nobody knew where they buried him. Where is he? Well, again, I couldn't find a picture of this. But when they started to ask the servants in the palace, they all knew. They said, go into Mariam's office. Go to his desk. Push the desk back and just dig at the floor underneath. There they found Haile Selassie's body. So every time the new emperor sat writing, making decisions, declaring his power, his feet were on the bones of his predecessor. All things will come under Christ's feet. So here is our last declaration together in this 
marvellous series as we've explored what Christians have said they believed all the way down the centuries, we call it now our declaration of faith, the creed. And in that we say, on the third day, Christ rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And at the end we say, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And with that umbrella in place, we are free, therefore, to live the life of this world for Christ. Christ died, was raised and appeared. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died for us. We die with him. Resurrection completes the picture. And now we live. We really live. Because we know that our root issues are put right in Christ. And we know where we're going together. Within that framework, we are free. Are we nearly there yet? I don't know. But you see where it gets us. If you have time later, read on through this chapter. Read on and see how you will be raised. And not once but twice, you will be changed. What good news that is. This is your confidence. This is your direction. This is your d destination. And if this is the end, and you may rely on it, as Paul says we can, then you are truly free to live here and now. So you are free. Free to live. Free to work. Free to serve. And above all, as the last verse of this great chapter says, to know that in the Lord, whatever you do, in his name, for his sake, shaped by his values, empowered by his spirit, whatever you do is useful. Whatever you do is fruitful in his hands. Whatever you do is not foolish and not in vain and not a waste of time. Whatever you do will last because he will make it last. And whatever you do in his name and for his sake will be effective. Isn't that good news? What a great start to whatever the summer will bring. With that in place, my brothers and sisters, let's do it, shall we? Let's go and let's live for him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this mixed-up, confused church because we've learned something from them and especially from the way that Paul speaks to them. Thank you for this tremendous journey that we've made together, this wonderful declaration of faith. And thank you for this vision of the future for us in Christ, that we, like him, will be raised one day. How near we are, we don't know. You alone know that. But now, with that in place, you have shown us that we are free to live for you. And Lord, we want to pray for one another this morning with the many challenges we face, with the many responsibilities we carry,
with the many concerns we have for our families and our homes and our neighbours and our workplaces and our country and our world. Lord, take us. Use us. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Empower us that we may live for you. One glorious day, Lord, bring us face to face with the Lord who himself was raised. We pray for his sake. Amen.